we have uh, a, a commission from Jesus in, uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. After the resurrection, some of his last words to his followers uh, are found in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, which we call the Great Commission, which probably many of us are familiar with. Jesus says this, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. In uh, Acts 1.8, we also have that same commission uh, where Jesus says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that commission to his, uh, to that, to the, the, the disciples and to the first church, that commission continues to be our mission in the 21st century. The primary mission of the church is to go and to be the witnesses of Jesus. It's to go and to make uh, other disciples, to make followers of Jesus. That is our primary mission in the world. And so this morning I want to ask a couple of questions. Number one, are you involved in that mission? Because the mission is an, is an optional. It's essential to Christ's work in this world. So are you involved in the mission? And I want to challenge you, uh, if you're not involved in going and being the witness of Christ, and that doesn't mean you have to go to Africa. That means you just have to walk outside the door here. And this is a mission field all around us. And so I want to encourage you to get off the sidelines and get into the game. In fact, I would suggest that maybe for some of us who are not in the game, who are bench warmers, maybe that's why the Christian life isn't as exciting as it seems to be in the book of Acts. Because when you read the book of Acts, that is an exciting book where you watch the gospel, you watch after the resurrection, these disciples who just prior to the resurrection had scattered, had left, had taken off, were scared. They were scared for their own lives. Something happens to those guys. And just a couple weeks later, they are in the very city where Jesus is crucified. And they are proclaiming not only his death, but his resurrection. And then we get to watch the unfolding of that in the book of Acts and the gospel moving out. And it's an exciting book. And sometimes we, we read the book of Acts and then we look at our own lives, we look at our own experience in the church and we go, why the disconnect? Why not the excitement and the passion that I see there? And I would suggest oftentimes it's because we are not living our lives for the cause of the gospel on mission for Jesus. So let me challenge you from the get-go that that is a, a central part of what we are doing here. The gathering, the fellowship, these are wonderful things. But there is also a going, and we must go. Now, okay, if I've made you feel guilty, <laughs> that wasn't my intention. What I want to do, though, is challenge you, but I don't want to just challenge you I want to try and, and give you some tools here. So let's do a little survey. Let's have a little honesty here. When you think about this challenge, when you think about this mission to go and to proclaim the truth of Christ, all right, let's do a little multiple choice, all right? When you think about talking to non-Christians about Jesus, do you get so excited that you go by yourself, okay? Or B, do you feel hesitant and nervous or C, would you rather be beaten and burned? Okay. So any anybody A, you're like, you think about talking to people about Jesus and you just get so excited. That just like pumps you up. Raise your hand. Okay. One, two. Okay. Two Jesus freaks in here. And I actually use that term in a positive way. Uh, let me just say this to you two gentlemen. The rest of us need you. The rest of us need you because the rest of us often uh, are, are, are much more nervous and we need you out front leading us. We need to see your boldness. You probably have some gifts in evangelism that you can equip us with. So we need, we need folks like you. We need more of you. Because I'm guessing the majority of us are going to say, okay, it's B for me. How many did you say B? You feel hesitant and nervous. 
Okay, yeah, that's the majority of us. Anyone in here would say, you know, I'd rather be beaten and burned. That sometimes that's how I feel. Because we actually have a stake outside that we can tie you. No. Yeah, we feel hesitant and nervous when we start thinking about engaging unbelievers of all stripes. Whether it's the atheist, the skeptic, the, the someone from another religion. Man, we, there, I mean, there's just a natural nervousness for many of us. But we know that it's not optional. Even though we are anxious and nervous, it's not optional. Part of our identity as followers of Jesus Christ is that we are ambassadors. Paul writes this in first, 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Right? That's not a 9 to 5 job. That's just a 24-7 thing. That's our identity. We are ambassadors for Christ. But think about what that means. As though God were making an appeal through us. You sit back and you think about what it means to be ambassador. Yes, I understand that nervousness, that anxiety, that fear. But let's also look at the incredible privilege that it is. The creator of all space, time, and matter the creator of the universe, the one true God, wants to use you and me as broken and as messed up as we are. He wants to use us, right, to to reach the world, to make an appeal through us. What's that appeal? We beg you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. So it's a tremendous privilege as well, even though it brings some anxiety. Now think about the idea of an ambassador, right? What what does it mean to be an ambassador? Well, our country, the United States of America, we send out an ambassador, don't we? In fact, we have a kind of a formal position. There's a a person in our government who is the kind of the formal ambassador for the United States. Who is that person? Testing your civic knowledge here, your... Secretary of State. There we go. The Secretary of State, primary goal there is to go and to, to, to interact with other states, with other countries, with other sovereign nations. And what do they do? They're an ambassador. The Secretary of State is an ambassador who represents the U.S., our interest, our values to these other nations. And in the same way, an ambassador of Christ stands on behalf of our sovereign, our king, God, and we represent him to the rest of the world. What a, what a dignified position that is to be in. Now, the question we want to ask is, how well are we representing Christ? What does our life as an ambassador look like? And you know what? It, it's, it's not enough to simply be well-intentioned. Now, I'm gonna, let me show you a video clip. This is a uh, of someone who's trying to be an ambassador, okay? And I want you to kind of watch this clip carefully, observe, and I want you to assess: is this an effective way to represent Christ? <laughs> uh, yeah, Nacho Libre. This clip, we're going to just move on, but this clip is where he baptizes his partner. If you remember, <laughs> at the end, he takes his head and dunks it in a, uh, a, a pot of water, okay? Now, certainly his, his buddy got baptized, but I'm not sure that's what Jesus meant when he said, go therefore and baptize, you know, all the nations. <laughs> um, so this is, that was not an example of a good ambassador. Now, maybe we can get uh, audio. I've got one more clip, so hopefully we can get audio for that one. But it, so what, what, when you see examples of, of bad ambassadors, Okay, and we all know there are times when I have been a bad ambassador. There are times when you've seen other people or yourself where we've just kind of blown it when it comes to representing Christ, right? And so let me offer you a picture uh, of uh, maybe a framework for how to evaluate an effective ambassador for Christ. And I suggest that an ambassador of Christ needs three essential skills. Here they are. Number one, they need knowledge. You've got to know some things. And we focused a lot on that this weekend in the training. Is what, what is it that we believe as Christians? And not just what is it that we believe, but why do we believe it? 
And many Christians may get stuck on the what and can never explain the why. And that's why we had an apologetic seminar to help equip us with the why. And so you have to have knowledge. You have to be able to, I mean, you have to have knowledge of the message, don't you? An ambassador for the U.S. has to have knowledge. In fact, we would argue the ambassador for the U.S., the Secretary of State, has to have pretty intricate knowledge. They have to have pretty extensive knowledge of the U.S., its policies, if they're going to effectively represent us. And in the same way, I think ambassadors of Christ need to be knowledgeable, need to be intelligent and smart and continually growing in our knowledge. Of course, we would, we would say that knowledge by itself is not enough. Because you could know someone, or you could, you, could have, you could be someone who knows a lot, who knows all the right answers, but you are a, a jerk. <laughs> and we know that's not going to be effective. You might be arrogant. That's not going to be effective. I would suggest, though, that for many of us, as I, as I travel around the country and speak at different churches and work with different groups, most of us, the problem isn't that we know too much. <laughs> it's not that we all, we all just know too much and we're walking around with just way too much knowledge. That's generally not the problem for the American evangelical church. But, but knowledge by itself is not enough, but it's vital, it's important, it's essential to be an effective ambassador. But not only do you need that knowledge, you need wisdom. You need to be able to know how to tactfully, artfully maneuver in a conversation. When to say something and maybe when to hold back. When to bite your tongue. When to ask a question or when to make a statement. There's a, a tactful, wise, artful approach that we need. And that's wisdom. Of course, that you could have that. You could have knowledge and you still wouldn't be effective because you could be a jerk. And that's why you need character as well. You need an attractive life, a life that is gracious and kind and warm and accepting. And you put those three things together. And, and, and think about it, character itself is not enough. If you have character, you could be the nicest person, but you don't have any knowledge, you're not going to be effective. Right? And so we need all three skills, knowledge, wisdom, and character to effectively represent Christ in this world. And what we want to do this morning is focus on that second one, wisdom. Because we know we've got this obligation to represent Christ to this world. But sometimes I think we, there's this pressure that we feel and sometimes this pressure that's put on us that paralyzes us and keeps us from, from going out and engaging the world. We hear statements like this, that, that in every conversation with a non-believer, you need to get to the gospel. Anytime you talk to a non-believer, you should try to close the deal, get to the cross, share the gospel. And we hear those kind of things, and we feel that kind of pressure, like, oh, gosh, here's my opportunity to talk to this unbeliever. i got to get to the gospel. And there's this kind of pressure, and for many of us, I think, is, it's actually paralyzing pressure that keeps us from engaging. Because we think, gosh, how, how, do I get, how do I get to the gospel? In fact, think about it. I want you to think about this analogy here with me. Think about the alphabet. A represents the person. Who, who doesn't believe in God. This is the atheist, right? They, they think there is no God. Z represents the person who's put their trust in Christ. Now, we realize that there are a lot of letters between A and Z. To get from A to Z, you got a lot of letters to cross. And so what we have to do is we have to identify where people are at in this spectrum, in this process. Look, if you are talking to someone who's at A, they're an atheist, and your goal in one conversation with them is to give them the gospel, okay? And you expect that there's going to be some kind of response there. You, you may, you, you will probably be, you most likely be, often you will be sorely disappointed. Now, am I saying that God can't do whatever he wants when it comes to that person's life? No, God can do whatever he wants, in terms of saving that person. If God wants to take that atheist and transform them into a Christian in a moment, he can do that. I'm not saying anything about that. But obviously when we look around, as we think about our engagements with people in the world, that's not, doesn't seem to be the normal course of, uh, of what he does. So there are those miraculous things. I'm not saying about anything, uh, uh, anything about what God can do. I'm saying what is the normal course that he uses? What he usually uses is you and me over time, sharing with people. 
And so I think what we have to do is we have to realize to get from A to Z takes some time. A friend of mine shared recently that she had a, she had a knock at the door. She opens up the door and there are two men, right, in white uh, dress shirts with uh, black slacks with little badges. They were representatives from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Some Mormons had showed up on her door and so she did the good Christian thing. She actually let them in. And, uh, and, and, and engaged them in conversation. They sat at her dinner table for about 45 minutes and had, had some good conversation about what their church believes, what she believes. And afterwards, they asked her if they could set up a second appointment. So she said, she said sure. And uh, the next week, they came back. She had them in the house again. They sat down, talked for about an hour. At the end of the conversation, she told me this. She said, I, I just realized they weren't going to change. I wasn't going to change. So I told them that. I said, look, you, you believe what you believe. I believe what I believe. I'm not going to change. You're not going to change. So there's really no point in us getting together again. And she you know, wished them well and sent them on their way. My thought was, well, what did you, ex- what did you expect? Did, did you really expect that after two conversations that you are going to bring these Mormon, these Mormon young men to Christ in two conversations? I mean, these guys probably have grown up in the Mormon church all their life. Their probably parents are Mormons. Their brothers and sisters are Mormons. Their family are all Mormons. All their friends are Mormons. They're now on their Mormon mission, committing two years of their life to this. And you think that after two conversations that you are going to convert them? Would, you, is it, would that be a reasonable expectation for them to have on you? Of course not. And I think it's just representative of the impatience of many of us Christians when it comes to sharing Christ with people. And we first have to find out where people are at, and that might help give us a proper view of maybe how long it'll take. I just talked to someone this weekend here at this church who said, her father, it took him 50 years before he came to Christ. And my question is, are you and I willing to walk with someone for 50 years? How about five years? How about five months? How about beyond five conversations? Are you willing to do that? If that's what it takes for them to come to Christ. I hope so. And so here's what I want to do. I want to modify the goal. Uh, with my, with my non-Christian friends, my goal for their life is that they, they come to Christ. Right? That's my ultimate goal for their life is they would come to Christ. They would put their trust in Him. They would receive salvation and new life. Right? He would redeem and transform. That's my ultimate goal. But my goal in every conversation with them is different. My goal in every conversation with them is not to get them to the cross. My goal in every conversation with them is to simply put a stone in their shoe. Right? You know what a stone does when it gets in your shoe. It bugs you. It gets your attention. You've you got to get it out of there. And what I want to do is in one conversation, I'm going to put a stone in their shoe. And the next conversation, I want to put another stone in their shoe. And I want to put another stone and another stone and another stone until they have to take seriously these claims. It's, it's the same idea of planting seeds, isn't it? And, and notice the goal is much more modest for each conversation. The ultimate goal is that they come to Christ. But the goal in each conversation is that I share a little bit more of the truth, a little bit more of the truth, and a little bit more of the truth, till eventually... God, the Holy Spirit is able to use that to change their minds and their hearts to be open to him. And I think that is much more doable. I think all of us can do that. And that kind of takes a little bit of that pressure off that paralyzes us. And that gets us so anxious about sharing Christ. And the key way that I'm, I'm going I'm to give you a practical tool here to help you put stones in people's shoe. And the key way is by using tactics. Tactics. Tactics simply refers to the art of arranging. What I want you to learn how to do is to arrange a conversation in such a way that it's a helpful conversation, that it's a productive conversation. Tactics are simply tools that you are going to use to have really good conversations about the truth. Okay? And there's one tactic in particular that I want to, uh, to impress upon you. 
Okay, there's a whole bunch of tactics that we teach to stand to reason, but I want you to walk out of here with one main tactic, and that's what we call the Columbo tactic. Now, how many of you are familiar with this guy right here? Yeah. Yeah, a number of you. Um, it is a little older crowd here, so, uh, you know. Uh, but the, how many young people, any young people know who Columbo is? Some of you are raising your hand. I'm not sure you're a young person. <laughs> uh, oh, I am sorry. I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm. Um, yeah, Columbo. For those of you who don't know Columbo, let me introduce you to Columbo. I got a video clip here on Columbo. Um, and uh, for Colombo was a just really popular show, like late 70s, early 80s. I mean, just won all these uh, awards. This, look at and watch Professor, or uh, I'm sorry, Detective Colombo. You know his car, his cigar, Post evidence, and his dog. It sits around the house and drawers. But do you know who are you? His first name, Lieutenant. 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 Colombo, the biggest name in crime solving, is now on DVD. Satisfied. He's back on the case. You have another minute. And something's bothering him. Excuse me, just one more thing. I wanted to ask you, do you have a math or a handkerchief, pencil, coffee? All those questions. Four-time Emmy Award winner Peter Fox stars. Where was that? Will you just shut up? As America's favorite sleuth. Isn't that something? With some very suspicious guest stars. Stop this. Enough is enough. Well, I'm going to throw you out of here. Winner of ten Emmys and one Golden Globe Award. What is your point? I'm not sure I have one. Now, you can own all your favorite episodes from seasons one through five of Columbo. How is that for time? Season six coming soon. All right, so that's Columbo. Now, here's the thing about Columbo. He's not very impressive looking. He doesn't seem to be the, uh, you know, the, the sharpest knife in the drawer. Uh, maybe not the most intelligent guy. He shows up at this crime scene with his wrinkled raincoat, messed up hair, and at the beginning of that episode, he shows up at the crime scene, and by the end of that episode, he has solved the crime. There's a method to his madness, and you maybe remember the lady who's leaning up against the car midway through the conversation. She says, all those questions. That is the key to Col uh, Detective Columbo's madness, is questions. That is what we call the Columbo tactic. The Columbo tactic is when you begin with questions rather than statements to advance the conversation. And this is an art that we as Christians need to learn how to master. Uh, we, you start with the questions. And, and we feel this pressure, right? We've got a message. We have the gospel. And we need to get that message out. And we feel like, well, we have the message. And so we often feel like we got to start with telling people the truth. And I want to suggest that one of the most helpful things you can do is actually not start with statements, but start with questions. Francis Schaeffer was a brilliant Christian apologist, a defender of the faith. He, he, know, he knows more than, um, you know, I, or he probably forgot more than most of us will ever know. I mean, this guy knew his stuff. Listen to what he says. He says, if I have only an hour with someone, I will spend the first 55 minutes asking questions and finding out what is troubling their heart and mind. And then the last five minutes, I will share something of the truth. What an approach. What an approach from someone who does have the answers, who can defend the faith. He says the first thing he's going to do is ask questions and really find out where that person is. In fact, when you start with questions, there are three particular benefits that you will find. Number one, you will dignify the other person. Sometimes we as, we as Christians need to treat non-Christians with more dignity and respect. We need to remember that that non-Christian, even though they have rejected Christ, are made in the image of God just like you and me and have equal value and dignity. Right? They are valuable and, dig and dignified simply because they're made in God's image. And so we want to treat them with that kind of dignity. And one of the things that makes us feel dignified and respected is when someone asks us questions and really sits back and then listens and really cares about what we think and, and, and what, our, what our heart and mind, uh, what, what is in our heart and mind. Right? I mean, think about it. If someone sits down with you and they start asking you questions and they actually listen, you walk away from that feeling kind of affirmed. 
feeling like that, that person actually cares. Think about the person who you're in that conversation with, and you know that they want you to stop talking so they can talk. In fact, there's a, 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 a great comedian, Brian Regan, who illustrates this beautifully. Let me show you a little piece from Brian Regan. Oh, yeah, we do that. I was at a dinner party recently. A bunch of people that I don't know. One guy talking plenty for everybody. Me, myself, right? And then I, and then myself, right? Me, me. I couldn't tell this one about I because I was talking about myself. And then me, 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 me. Beware the me monster. So I tried to jump in with a little story. I don't want to just sit there the whole night. Right when I'm done with my story, this guy goes, that ain't nothing. Didn't mean to waste everybody's time. (laughs) Telling my nothing story. Here, let Marco Polo speak. He's back with tales of adventure. My story ain't nothing. Why do people need to top other people? I've never understood it, and I see it all the time. Obviously, people get something out of it. At best, people wait for your lips to stop. Yeah, as soon as... Okay, yeah, you, me! You, me! You see the difference? You see, you see that? Now I do. What is it about the human condition people get something out of that? What a great description of how some Christians approach evangelism, right? It's all about uh, you, me, you, me. And of course, that is not a dignifying approach. No one feels dignified when they know you don't want to hear what they have to say. You just want to say what you want to say. So that's the first benefit. The second benefit is then you really get to know what that person believes. Don't assume you know what that person believes, even if they say, hey, I'm an atheist or, hey, I'm a Muslim. Or, hey, I'm agnostic. Don't assume that you know what they believe. You need to spend some time figuring out what they believe. Because atheists, there are atheists of various stripes, just like there are Christians of various stripes. Many of us in here, we would identify as Christians. But does that mean someone can come here and assume that we all believe the same thing? Of course not. So you want to get to know what that person believes. And when you get to know what that person believes, it helps you Uh, To know where to start, where to begin, what to say. It also keeps you from committing a logical fallacy called the straw man fallacy. Right? We say, oh, I know what the atheist believes. The atheist believes that if if there's no God, you know, then, then there's no morality. You can't be good. And so the atheist is probably immoral or something like that. I've heard Christians make those kind of arguments. And that's what we call a straw man. You know, it's easy to knock over a straw man, isn't it? It's easy to knock over a weak argument. And when we take somebody's view and we give the weakest possible position, all we've done is knocked over a straw man. But you know it's much more difficult to knock over B.J. Penn, who's an MMA fighter, right? And so you want to be able to really know what someone's argument is so you deal with their reasons and their arguments for rejecting God, for rejecting Christianity, for rejecting Christ. A third benefit, then, is it also takes the pressure off of you. Some pressure is good. We need to feel the the, the challenge to go and share the gospel. But pressure that paralyzes, that's not good. So I want to take some of that pressure off of you and realize everyone in here can ask questions. And that takes some of the pressure off of you. So here here we go. Let's jump into this. there are two particular Columbo questions you need to learn how to ask. Here's the first one. Number one, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? You need to learn how to ask this one again and again and again. What do you mean by that? The purpose of this question is to gain information. It's, a, it's simply a clarification question at this point. What do you mean by that? And when you, when you get in the habit of asking this, it will actually make you a better listener. Because we use terms all the time, and sometimes some of our fundamental misunderstandings come from the fact that we use terms differently. Okay? So, let me give you some examples. Let's say you're talking to your atheist friend, who looks like something like this, right? Their atheist t-shirt. You're talking to your atheist friend, and they tell you, 
There is no God. Now, before you jump all over their case and say, yes, there is. In fact, I was just at this seminar and I learned the Kalam cosmological argument. Right Before you do that, what are you going to do? You're going to ask them the question. Clarification. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by God? You say there is no God. So what do you mean by God? Well, you often have atheists say, well, I don't believe there's any, any there, there, there's no, no such thing as a sky god out there. There's no old man who's sitting on some large white throne in the clouds up in the heavens with a long white beard, right, and his staff ruling the universe. I don't believe in God. So notice, I've gotten clarification, right? I've gotten more information. I'm not assuming what their view of God is. I'm, get, I'm getting them to tell me what their view of God is. Now they've given me their view of God. And guess what? That's good news. Because I don't believe in that God either. I'm not going to defend some old man who's got a long white beard sitting in the clouds in heaven. That doesn't sound like my God. That actually sounds like, like Gandalf, right? I'm not going to defend the existence of Gandalf. I'm going to defend the existence of God. So I'm going to say to my atheist friend, oh, great, because I don't believe in that God either. And so what do you think? then his response is going to typically be. He's often going to ask me a question then. Well, well what God do you believe in? Oh, I'm glad you asked, right? Now notice, I'm not forcing my view on him. I'm not just throwing it out there. But I'm starting with questions and having some clarification. And oftentimes my questions will then invite his questions. When I dignify him with questions, he will often dignify me with questions. You'll hear this one in our culture. People say things like this. Christians are intolerant. Before you say, no, we're not, you're going to say, yeah, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by intolerant? And then you're going to sit back and you're going to listen. And oftentimes what you hear in our culture is something like this. Christians are intolerant. What do you mean by that? You think you're right and everyone else is wrong. That's intolerant. Now think about that. You got more information. Here's their view of what it means to be intolerant. You think you're right and everyone else is wrong. So then I have another follow-up question for them. Oh, do you think I'm wrong about this? Well, yeah. Okay, so, so you think you're right. Well, yeah, that's why I'm correcting you. Oh, so you think you're right and I'm wrong. Well, great, you're intolerant too. You see, we're both intolerant. Let's keep, ta- let's keep talking. On their definition of intolerance, what you're going to find is their definition of tolerance is self-contradictory. If to be intolerant means you think you're right and everyone else is wrong, and they're correcting you about that, they're saying you're wrong for being intolerant, well, they think they're right and you're wrong. And so then on their own definition, they're intolerant too. And that definition, everyone's just intolerant. Because we all think we're right about things. And I'm okay with that. I, I'm okay if you think you're right. I'm, I'm wrong. I'm just not going to call you names, you see. And notice, we, you start with some questions, some clarification questions. You'll have, um, uh, you'll have these, these guys show up at your door, right? Come knocking at your door. And, uh, you know, Elder, Elder Smith and Elder Jones are going to look at you, and you're gonna, you're gonna, of course, you're going to invite them in and have a conversation, and they're going to say something like this. They're going to say, we believe in Jesus too. And some Christians get thrown by this. Oh, you do? Oh, you believe in the scriptures? You believe in God the Father? You believe in the Holy Spirit? Gosh, you believe that Jesus atoned for our sins on the cross? Wow, Mormonism sounds really like Christianity. Maybe it's just another denomination of Christianity. And that's because you haven't used your tactics. So when the Mormon says, we believe in Jesus, you're going to say, yeah, what do you mean by Jesus? One of the unique mission trips that I do, with, uh, particularly with young people, is we take them to Utah on a theological mission trip. And we throw them in front of Mormons and uh, give them opportunities to engage. And uh, I'll tell you, there's nothing that motivates young people than doing something like that. And, uh, and then we, they get motivated, they, they study, they prepare because they know they're going out the next day. Well, one of the things that we've been doing recently is uh, we've been going into some of the polygamous communities that are there in Utah. There's probably about 150,000 polygamists in the state of Utah. In fact, you can go to uh, one of the communities we've been working in is about an hour, uh, hour south of Salt Lake City, a little town called Santa Quinn. There's a little housing area, uh, housing uh, development there called Rocky Ridge. 
And so we've gone in there, we've gone door to door. Not to talk about polygamy, but to share the gospel. And so we go door to door. And I remember the, the first time we did this, uh, the second door we knocked on, uh, one of the polygamous wives opened up the door and she, she let us in. And I got to tell you, that's a surreal experience. When you have uh, one wife open the door, you can see another wife in the back chasing kids. And it's wild that you know, that exists here in the U.S., but it does. And so we, we, uh, the second door we knocked on, she invited us in. She was very nice and kind. And we sat down with her in her living room. And we had like a great like hour and a half conversation talking about the gospel. Well, midway through that conversation, she said to me uh, that she had a cousin who was an evangelical Christian. And she said her cousin kept saying to her that she believes in a different Jesus, that Mormons believe in a different Jesus. And she looked at me and she said, but I don't understand what she's saying. I do not believe in a different Jesus. So what did I do at that point? I asked her, I asked her questions. So what do you mean by that? Okay, so tell me, what, when you say Jesus, what do you mean? Who is Jesus? So she started telling me, well, Jesus was, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus lived a, a perfect, sinless life here on earth. Jesus died on the cross to atone for our sins. Uh, then he rose again three days later. So far, so good? Yeah, sounds like my Jesus so far. So I asked her, okay, well, do you believe, uh, what do you believe about, okay, that's his earthly life. What do you believe about Jesus after his earthly existence? What do you believe about Jesus prior to his earthly existence? And of course, so she started to tell me. And prior to Jesus' earthly existence, the Mormon view, her view, was that Jesus is literally the firstborn of the heavenly parents. Not only is there the heavenly father, but there's the heavenly mother who lives somewhere on the planet out in our universe who are procreating and having spirit children. And Jesus is simply the first of the spirit children. He's literally the son of God. Okay, now I'm getting more information. Jesus turns out to be a created being. He's not the second member of the Trinity. So now she's giving me this information. And so at that point, after she shares, I said to her, I said, well, you know what? That's where there's some key differences. And she said, oh, really? I said, yeah. She asked me a question. Well, what are the differences? What do you believe about Jesus? And so I got to talk to her a little bit about the Trinity, that Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. He is eternally God. He never was created. He isn't the, the, the firstborn son of God doesn't mean literal son of God like you, you and I might use. So I was able to give that explanation. At the end of that conversation, you know what she said to me? She said, now I understand why Christians say they believe in a different Jesus. Now, was that progress? Absolutely, because I walked into that house with her thinking that Mormons and Christians believe the same exact thing. Walked out of the house and she realized we don't believe the same thing. We have different views of God. And at the very least, we both can't be right about this. And so that was progress. Did she come to Christ at that point? No but I was able to put a stone in her shoe. And then I trust in the faithfulness of God that he will continue uh, to maybe bring others, missionaries there, that she'll run into other Christians. And I, I trust that God will, will do his work if he so chooses. And so you and I have to answer, ask that Columbo question number one again and again and again. What do you mean by that? What do you mean? When you say that word, what do you mean? What, what does that mean to you? Okay, that's the first Columbo question. Here's the second Columbo question. Columbo question number two, how did you come to that conclusion? So not only what do you mean by that, but now how did you come to that conclusion? Now you're asking for the reasons why someone believes what they believe. And this is a key distinction between the two, the two questions. The first Columbo question tells you what that person thinks, right? You're getting clarification. You want to know what they think. So what do you mean by that? You want to know what they think. But the second Columbo question tells you why they think the way they do. You want to now get at the reasons why they believe what they believe. And the key thing about the second Columbo question is, is it, it's going to help take the, the pressure off you by reversing the burden of proof. It reverses the burden of proof. What do I mean by the burden of proof? Well, the burden of proof is, is, is pretty simple. Generally speaking, in kind of uh, dialogue, argumentation, reasoning, the burden of proof means that the person who makes the claim has the, per has the, the, the burden to demonstrate why they think their claim is true. 
they have the burden of proof. Right? So if you make a claim, generally speaking, you have the burden of proof. And this applies, uh, it doesn't apply, I think, to what we would call self-evident claims. Like if I say to you, I exist, I've made a claim, right? But I don't think there's any burden of proof on me to prove that to you because it's self-evidence. So like if you say, well, prove it to me that you exist. <laughs> what do I do? Right? Uh, kick you in the knee or something. I don't know. Uh, but, but outside of what we call self-evident claims, if you make a claim, you generally have the burden of proof. And so when you talk to your non-Christian friends, they're going to make all kinds of claims. They're going to have all kinds of conclusions. And I want you to think of it with the analogy of a house. So there, the, we believe all kinds of things, our conclusions. So one of the conclusions I have come to is that God exists. That would be my roof. That would be one of my roofs, right? Uh, my atheist friend believes that there is no God. So that's one of his conclusions. That's his roof. And so the first Columbo question is really getting at what, he, what are your views? What are your conclusions? What's the roof? The second Columbo question is getting at the walls. Because you know that roof is only as good as the walls it's supported by. If I got weak walls, it's eventually going to crumble. In the same way, if you have weak reasons or weak evidence or weak proof, the conclusion will crumble. And the second Columbo question is asking, okay, what are the reasons for your roof? What are the walls that are holding up your roof? What are the reasons for your conclusions? Does that make sense? Yeah, very simple. And so the two Columbo questions get at the argument. So let's do a couple examples here. Number one, someone says to you, well, you know what? All religions are basically the same. Your response? Yeah. First question you might ask is, what do you mean by that? In what way are all religions basically the same? So they might say, well, there's, they're all, they all you know, share kind of the ideas about love and morality. And if that's the claim, then that's actually, that, that, that's true. There is a similar moral strain in all religions, which I think is consistent with what Paul says in Romans 2, that God has written his moral law in every human heart. But if they say something like, well, all religions basically worship the same God. Every religion is just a different path to the same God. Now, that's the claim. Then I know I've got to say something different because that claim is false. And all you got to do is study religions to know that. But, but even before you jump into that, not only do you ask, what do you mean by this? Right? But then the question would be, how, how did you come to that conclusion? So your friend says, oh, all religions lead to the same God. They're just different paths to the same God. So my question then is, how did you come to that conclusion? Why do you think that? And so what are they going to have to do? They're going to have to explain to you how they've kind of looked at all the religions and how they've got this view that at the, all these different religions end up at the same place with all their contradictory views. So notice you're putting the burden of proof on them. You're putting the pressure on them, and that's completely legitimate. You may have someone who says to you, well, you know that Bible that you read, that you, you think is the word of God? That Bible is full of errors and contradictions. So your response? Yeah, you could say, you could start with what do you mean by that, right? What do you mean by a contradiction? Because you might want to get them to define a contradiction because a contradiction is different it is, a contradiction is not the same thing as a difference. So what does it exactly mean to be a contradiction? And then the question is, okay, how did you come to that conclusion? I got a Bible right here. Could you show me which contradictions you're talking about? Now, what you'll find is that probably 90% of the people that you ask that second question to when they make the claim the Bible's full of error and contradiction, 90% of people aren't going to have any answer for you. Because this is just something they've heard out there in the culture on some news talk show or whatever. And they're not going to have any answer for you. And so then my, my response is, well, if you don't have any specific examples of errors and contradictions, I, that doesn't give me any reason to believe that there is any errors and contradictions, right? Now, you may run into someone who says, who's read, maybe they've read uh, the uh, skeptical scholar Bart Ehrman, who's written uh, all kinds of stuff on the, the problems with, uh, the, the alleged problems of the New Testament text. So they may, maybe they have some examples. I go, yeah, well, hey, uh, why don't you turn to the end of Mark, Mark chapter 16, 9 through 20, and let me show you that. And then you start thinking, oh, my gosh, what did I get myself into, right? Why did I listen to that guest speaker that we had? <laughs> well, when you get someone who is kind of over your head, someone who has questions or objections that you don't know how to answer, 
Let me just give you three little words that you need to say. Okay, here they are. I don't know. Okay, do that with me. Say that with me. I don't know. Well, I can see that was difficult for some of us. We don't like to say I don't know, especially as Christians. If I say I don't know, that person's going to be lost for eternity, right? No, look, if you don't know the answer to something, the best thing to do is to admit it and be honest about it. And oftentimes that is actually refreshing to the person you're talking to. You don't come across as a know-it-all Christian. You don't come across as someone who's unwilling to think about your positions and your beliefs carefully. It, look, you're not going to fake it. You can't fake it. People will, they can see you faking it, right? You think when you come up with some kind of answer that just does not deal with their objection. So say you don't know, but notice it's not, I don't know, period. It's, I don't know, dot, dot, dot. I don't know. That's a really good question. Affirm the person. That's a really good question. You know what? Can I take, a, can I take about three or four or five days or a week, do a little research on that question? Cause I'm not sure how to answer that one. I think it's a really good question, but let me come back and, and let's, let's set up a time to, to keep this conversation going in a week or so. Can we do that? Yeah, sure. And I'll do my homework. And then what you communicate is not only a humility, an appropriate humility, but you also communicate a seriousness that you're going to go study and do some research because these are important questions. And so say you don't know. Okay, let's do a little review here. All right. First Colombo question is, what do you mean by that? Ask that one again and again. It's a clarification question. What do you mean by that? It tells you what they believe. The second Colombo question how did you come to that conclusion? Those are the two questions. Now, think about it. Is there anybody in this room that can't walk out these doors and immediately start using these questions? Do you have to have any other knowledge to ask these questions? Asking these questions requires no other knowledge. And it's completely legitimate for you and for me to ask other people what they believe and why they believe it. Because it's not just Christians who need to be able to give a reason for the hope that they have. It's not only Christians who need to make a defense. Everyone does. Of course, Scripture commands us to be ready with an apologetic. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always, always, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account. To give a reason for the hope that is in you. Yeah, with gentleness and reverence. So yes, we have an obligation to do that. So that's why we did a seminar like we did this weekend, to give you the knowledge, the, the understanding of what we believe and why we believe it. But everyone has a view, and everyone needs to give reasons for their view. And what you'll find is that the majority of people don't know what they believe. The majority of non-Christians don't know what they believe and why they believe it. And when you ask these questions, you can gently help expose that. And it's, it's something that every single one of us in here can do. And it takes some of the pressure off of us. Now, eventually, you're going to have to be able to give reasons for what you, what you believe. Because hopefully what will happen is that, is that as you begin to use these questions, you ask people what they believe and why they believe it, and they kind of come to the, to the end of their rope, they will hopefully then turn the question back to you and say, well, well what do you believe then? Why do you have hope? Why do you believe in God? And then we're to be able to give a, a reason for the hope that we have. And tactics will help you in that whole uh, process. Look, the goal of apologetics is not to win the arguments. The goal of apologetics is to win the person. Apologetics is to be used in the service of the gospel. Okay? The tactics are not to belittle people. They're not to just show people they're wrong and we're right. The tactics are used to win the person to help them see there are, that they have false ideas. And so what tactics will do is they will help you to defend the faith without being defensive. When you ask questions, the pressure's off of you. And every one of us can do that. Because oftentimes when we defend the faith, and, and, and sometimes these end up being heated conversations, and, and sometimes I've seen Christians, they get mad in these conversations. And if you get mad in these conversations about the gospel, guess what? You lose. The gospel loses. 
but you also want to try and help keep them from getting upset because oftentimes when they get mad, you lose too. Now, there are times when the truth offends and there's nothing you can do about that. But we can work a lot more on getting better at engaging people. And I think tactics will help us do that. Now, so you're going to start using these tactics. Maybe you're going to start getting in some good conversations and you're going to get questions back and you're going to go, okay, I need the second part of this. That's where we have further resources. Our organization, Stand to Reason, exists to help equip you to be able to go into this world and to intelligently make a case that the gospel is true and uh, that Christ is the only hope in the world. And so we have a ton of resources for you. Go to our website, str, stand to reason, str.org, ton of resources there. You can connect with us on social media. We're constantly putting out for more resources, new resources, dealing with more questions and the contemporary challenges that people give us. And then lastly, we also have a, a, a great website for young people where uh, we, those four questions that we talked about this weekend about making a case that Christianity is true, we help you answer those questions, young people. We developed this specifically for our high schoolers and college students and even for junior hires because we got to start equipping young people in the church as well. We have more resources as well. Actually, Greg Kokel, our president, founder of Standard Reason, he wrote the book Tactics. It's a great book. If you want that book, I know there are some copies at uh, Hannah's Bookstore. Uh, you, you can go, uh, uh, gosh, it's what, just a mile away. Go down there tomorrow. You'll be open tomorrow. You can grab a couple copies of Tactics there. And What's today? Oh, oh, you're closed Monday. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Well, I no pressure to open, especially for this. So. <laughs> Tuesday, go get tactics. Okay. Uh, let me close with uh, a, a quote from uh, an apologist, Ravi Zacharias, that summarizes all that we've done this weekend. Summarizes our apologetic, the tactics, all that we're trying to do. He's talking about the work of apologetics. He says, the longer I'm in this work, the more I realize that intellectual struggles are merely the hazardous waste of life, blocking the heart from truth. The task of apologetics is to carefully remove that hazardous material and keep it from igniting into a destructive fire. Once that is done, the way to the heart is always through the way of the cross. God's love for each and every one of us. What you can do with the tactics is you can begin to move the obstacles. What you can do with apologetics is begin to move the obstacles that stand in people's way so that they can then, for maybe the first time, take a clear look at Jesus Christ and the good news that he offers. Let me challenge you. Everyone now is equipped with two questions that you can go out and this week use. Pray for opportunities to use those questions. And I bet God will give you some opportunities this week. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity for us to come and to think carefully about your truth and, uh, and, and, and how to engage the world with your truth. Lord, we need help with this. So help us, Father. Equip us. Give us courage and strength. Help us to, 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 to know the truth so well. And not only to know it, but to be transformed by it. And of course, we know the truth is found in Christ alone. And so we pray that you would help us uh, to know the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. And to proclaim that to the world. Amen.